The text for us today is Mark 13, 14 to 19. I'm actually going to include verse 20, actually, in our reading today. Um, We'll study it again next week as well. Jesus says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. This is the gospel of the Lord. So last week we started our four-week trek through arguably the most easily misunderstood chapter in the entire gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 13. And so if you weren't able to be with us last week, I'd encourage you to go back to our YouTube channel or our podcast um, and watch at least the first 10 minutes of last week's message because we went through some sort of ground rules or a lens that we have to have on if we're going to understand Mark 13. Just a quick review, we said uh, this is a dual fulfillment prophecy. We second said that Jesus is far more concerned with how we are to behave as we look towards the end times than when they are going to happen or what is going to happen. And then finally, we said any theology that says that something has to happen in order for Jesus to come back is a non-biblical theology. We know that everything that has to be done has happened. Jesus could come back at any moment. And so we have those lenses on as we look at this text. And last week I explained them and encourage you to go back and look at them if you have not. Uh, Today we're going to be studying a a kind of difficult topic for a lot of people. It's called the abomination that causes desolation or the abomination of desolation. And to be honest with you, there are a lot of opinions about what this is and what it means. And so there's a pretty good chance that at least somebody in this room or who's watching online will have a different opinion about what the abomination desolation is, um, or maybe has grown up with a different teaching or just has always understood it differently than what I'm going to say. And I want to be sensitive to that. Um, So I thought about going through like all of the different ways that people misunderstand this text but then I thought that's probably not worth our time. So what I'm going to do is just show you uh, what I believe is the most biblical answer to what the abomination that causes desolation is. And if you think something different or you've heard something different, just call me, email me, set up a time to meet this week, and I'll walk through why, why I believe all the other understandings of this are not sufficiently biblical. Um, what we're going to kind of do today is uh, play Sudoku. You ever played Sudoku? Sudoku, if you don't understand, have never played it, is a game where you have all these numbers on a chart, and in every line are all nine of numerals. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And by having some of the numbers, you can start to figure out where the other numbers are. And if you've ever played, you know that as you look at certain boxes, there are multiple options of which number could fit into those boxes, but as you start to add numbers around the board, you get a better picture of what that number probably is. If you've never played Sudoku, I just lost you. I'm sorry. Um, But what we're going to do is, is look at a number of characteristics of the abomination of desolation that come from the scriptures and from history. And we're going to sort of put those pieces together and get what I believe is a pretty sufficient view of what the abomination of desolation is. But the reason I compare it to Sudoku is sometimes when you're looking at a Sudoku board, you're not totally sure what numbers is supposed to go into that box. And so you have maybe one or two options. 
That might be what ends up happening for us today, that we'll look at this and we'll say, you know, I can see that that possibly fits, but I'm not totally sure. And uh, I actually think that's okay in this case. Um, because really, we said last week, the dual fulfillment prophecy is looking forward to the later fulfillment of the prophecy. So if we don't exactly get exactly what Jesus meant about the abomination of desolation in 70 AD, that's probably actually okay as long as we understand the principle and how it's going to apply for us moving forward. Okay, so the abomination of desolation. Um, on your notes sheet, this would be a good time to take notes to follow through some of the pieces that we're going to put together as we, we find these, this puzzle that Jesus gets, gives us with the abomination of desolation. The first thing we need to do is just define the words, uh, because both of these words would have been technical terms for the first century Jew. In the mind of a first century Jew, Old Testament Christian, the abomination would be something that was a direct affront to God and his word, and it was usually connected to false worship. So if, if uh, a person would either do the worship of God in an incorrect way or would worship another God that was very often called an abomination. The, the second word is desolation. And, and a desolation would be a place where there was no people. There was no inhabitable land there. If a land was laid desolate, it was so that no one could come back and live there later. So very basically, the abomination of desolation is an affront to God that makes worship of God impossible. Okay, just those words. That's just what it means. An affront to God that makes worship of God impossible. Um, Now, we have to understand that it's not just those words that Jesus made up that help us understand. We have to go back to the biblical context that Jesus is pulling from. The second piece of this comes from the book of Daniel, which is where this phrase originally shows up. Um, It shows up in Daniel 9, 11, and 12. If you look back at Daniel 11, we get another piece of what this abomination of desolation is. Daniel writes for us, his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. And then he will, they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Okay, so this kind of fits, right? You have something that is an affront to God and worship of God that's going to be set up here and abolish the daily sacrifice. So it's going to, in, in, a, in a way, impede the proper worship of God. Okay. That's Daniel's context. But then when Jesus uses this phrase and he pulls Daniel's words forward, he actually nuances it a little bit for us. Um, You'll notice in the text that uh, he describes the abomination of desolation as standing when Daniel had described it as being set up. You could read Daniel's words and you could say, oh, the abomination of desolation is a thing. Maybe it's a statue or it's some other false god's worship item. Um, But Jesus actually says, no, this is actually a person. And the way we can tell that is hard to see in English, but you can see it in the Greek. Uh, we in English, we don't gender our verbs. So I can say like he ran or she ran or it ran and ran always stays the same, right? We don't gender the verb. We just change the gender of the pronoun. But in Greek, they gender their verbs. It's called an inflected language. And so within the word, the verb standing is a masculine pronoun. It's embedded in the word. So when Jesus says this, he's effectively saying that the abomination that causes desolation is not a thing, it's a person. Okay, it's not a thing, it's a person. We also have a a historical context of this as well. Um, In 167 BC, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Seleucid king at that time, conquered Jerusalem, kicked out the Jews from the temple, built an altar to Jupiter, or Zeus, on the altar that was for Yahweh, and sacrificed a pig on that altar. 
If you know anything about Old Testament Christianity, the pig is an unclean animal. So the idea of sacrificing an unclean animal on God's altar in God's temple would have been, well, an abomination, right? In the Jewish writings of that time that we get from 1 Maccabees, they call it the abomination of desolation. And, and interestingly, it's the only place in all of Jewish literature that that phrase shows up. And so I I actually, if Jesus hadn't talked about the abomination of desolation, I would probably think this moment was what Daniel prophesied. But Jesus keeps that term and says it's still coming, which means that this isn't the fulfillment, it's a picture of a fulfillment. Okay, so let's keep putting the pieces together. We have a direct affront to God and the worship of God that causes worship in the sacrifice to be, or worship in the temple to be abolished because of a person who is doing something that's contrary to God, right? That's, this is what we have so far. So, okay, this is the idea of the abomination of desolation. And what is it actually, <laughs> right? It, it's all well and good to have the, the picture, but who would this person actually be? Well, to understand that, we have to go to our good friends, Matthew and Luke, who also write down what Jesus said this, uh, at this moment in Mark's gospel. Matthew tells us that Jesus said, when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination of desolation, he's saying, when you see that that person standing in God's holy temple, and Luke says that when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that the desolation is near. So put Matthew, Mark, and Luke together. We have this abomination of desolation, this affront, this person who's standing in the holy temple of God when there are armies surrounding Jerusalem, that's the moment. Okay, so we've kind of played Sudoku here. We put all the numbers together. We're looking at the one piece in the middle and we're saying, okay, do we have an event that fits all of these characteristics? And the answer is we do. Uh, But to understand it, you have to back up a little bit in the history of Jerusalem. Um, You can even see this in the gospels that the Jews and the Romans did not get along even in Jesus' day right? Uh, They really didn't like each other. But for the most part, it was peaceful. In fact, some of the Jews actually enjoyed being occupied by Rome. You can think of the Herodians probably as an example. However, there were a select few who just hated them so much that they just wanted to kill them all. Uh, This group was called the Zealots. They were essentially like your alt-right radical group uh, within uh, the Jewish nation at the time. In the mid-60s, they revolted against the Roman soldiers who were garrisoned in Judea. They actually killed many of them and kicked them out of Judea so that they essentially took Judea back from the Romans for a little while. But as you can probably imagine, the Romans didn't like this very much. So Nero, who was the emperor at the time, sent an up-and-coming general named Vespasian to squelch this revolt. If you know your Roman history, you know Vespasian actually eventually became the Roman emperor. Vespasian brings along his son Titus, who also becomes a Roman emperor later, and they bring their armies into into Judea to tamp down this zealot revolt. They bring their armies in in 66-67 AD and slowly tighten the noose on Jerusalem. During this time, the zealots take over the temple as their fortress. It's it's almost like a, a a battle station for them. Uh, They fight back against any Roman who would come from there and in the process have to kick out the current high priest. They eventually also kill him and they set up their own priesthood in the temple so they can keep the sacrifices going. The problem is the zealots are not allowed to set up who is the high priest. God's prescription for setting up the high priest was by family lineage and they just cast lots and picked one of their guys to be the new high priest. 
And so what do you have? You have a man standing where he ought not be in the temple of God, offering sacrifices in a way not prescribed by God that's going to lead to the destruction of the temple and the abolishment of all worship there. I'm pretty convinced this is the abomination of desolation. Maybe not everyone would agree with me, but it seems to fit the facts uh, the best that I find. Jesus says, when you see this to the disciples, when you see the abomination of desolation, this one standing in the temple where he ought not be, making a mockery of the worship of God, then you should run. Flee to the hills. Flee to the mountains. And we know actually historically this happened. Uh, The church historian Eusebius and uh, Epiphanius of Salamis tell us that the Christians fled Jerusalem at this time and went to a place called Pella, which is in modern-day Jordan. And with good reason. Um, Jesus says that it will be dreadful in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Many of you ladies who have had children, you know that when you're pregnant or nursing, you just don't do things as quickly as you would like to do them, right? And if you're trying to get out of the city, nursing or being pregnant is going to inhibit that. And he also says to pray that this will not happen in winter. Of course, traveling in winter is also more difficult. And he says that that's going to be the case because those days of distress will be unequaled. And he wasn't kidding. We find out that not only were the zealots killing Romans at this time, but they were also killing Jews who didn't agree with them. If the zealots found that you weren't going to fight back against Rome with them, they would kill you. In fact, that's why they killed Ananus, the high priest at that time. They also tried to incite more of the Jews to fight along with them against the Romans, so they destroyed the food supply in Jerusalem, causing a famine, which led thousands to die of starvation and even some to engage in cannibalism of their children. The uh, Jewish historian Josephus tells us that 1.1 million people died in the siege of Jerusalem. Just to put that in perspective, if you add up COVID-related deaths in Mexico, the United States, and Canada over the pandemic, it's about 1.1 million deaths. That's a lot of death. But now think of all that death concentrated in a city about the size of Barrie, Ontario. That's some unequal distress. Jesus says then, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have survived. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. And this is maybe the most interesting part of this story to me because we actually get the historical uh, affirmation of this from Titus. Remember Titus? He was the general who became an emperor later. Titus writes about the siege of Jerusalem that the way the Jews left Jerusalem was almost as if God was forcing them to do it. That's what he says. A guy who does not believe in our God says, it seems like God was motivating them to leave. Um, because the Lord was cutting short those days. He didn't let them stay in Jerusalem because he knew that eventually all of them would be slaughtered. And so there you have it. That's the abomination of desolation. Um, But like we said, this is a dual fulfillment prophecy. So it's not enough just to know the primary historical context of this. We have to think through, okay, what does this mean for us still today as we think about the days that lead up to the end of the world? And so here's the question. Is there somebody who stands in the temple of God, who because of the way he operates makes worship of the true God impossible. To help you with this, uh, let's go to the Apostle Paul. He actually gives us some insight into it. Um, He says that there's going to be a man of lawlessness who's going to be revealed. And he says that this man of lawlessness will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so do we have somebody who sets himself up in the temple of God, 
claims that you need to worship him rather than God, a person who, by the way that he conducts worship, distracts or deflects from the worship of God to his own worship, do we have that person? While you're thinking about it, let me give you a couple quotes. Therefore, of the one and only church, there is one body and one head, not two heads, like a monster, that is Christ and the vicar of Christ, Peter, and the successor of Peter. We teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that when the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. In this way, by unity with the Roman pontiff, in communion and in profession of the same faith, the church of Christ becomes one flock under one supreme shepherd. This is the teaching of the Catholic truth, and no one can depart from it without endangering his faith or salvation. Furthermore, we declare, we proclaim, we define that it is absolutely necessary for salvation that every human creature be subject to the Roman pontiff. So, is there somebody who sets himself up in the temple of God and demands that he be worshipped, that he is God, or maybe the vicar of Christ? Vicar is just a word that means in the place of or in the stead of. You know, I, when, I, when I became pastor here, I uh, made a vow that I was going to teach you everything that God's word says and not hide any bit of it, even if it's difficult or uncomfortable. And to be honest with you, if I had not made that vow, I probably would not be teaching you this today. Um, if you look at the schedule that a lot of pastors use for studying through the gospel of Mark, many of them skip this text because this is hard. Uh, this makes people uncomfortable. But it's in God's word. And therefore, we have to talk about it. We have to preach it because it's true, and God says that all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, I realize some of you maybe have never heard this before. Or or maybe you're really feeling uncomfortable about the implications of this. So as we process this together, let me give you a couple thoughts. Um, First, I think one of the reasons we're uncomfortable with calling the office of the papacy the man of lawlessness is that we know a lot of Catholics and they're good people who love Jesus. And that's true. There are a lot of Catholics who are good people who love Jesus. But you can be a good person who loves Jesus and be deceived. And maybe for a second, it should make us all think back on our own faith and and wonder, am I a good person who loves Jesus who is deceived? Do I think of my Christian faith primarily in terms of what I learned when I was a child or the traditions that I've picked up? Or am I actually going back to scripture and defining everything I do, everything I think, everything I believe based on what the Bible says? Second, I think this is challenging for us because sometimes people make the logical jump that because the office of the papacy is the man of lawlessness, then therefore all Catholics are going to hell. That's not true. You're saved because you believe in Jesus for your salvation. And despite the uh, official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, many people do believe in Jesus for their salvation in that church body. Third, I think this makes us uncomfortable because 
we look at the Roman Catholic Church and realize they are the biggest Christian denomination on the planet. And they have a lot of power and a lot of influence. And what do we in our little church have, have to say about that? Um, I'll give you two thoughts on this. First of all, when you look at Jesus, how did Jesus use his power and influence? Did Jesus use his power and influence to talk to high-ranking government, government officials or to push social causes? No, he used his power and influence to give it up so that you could be saved. In fact, Jesus, in many ways, was trying to make his flock smaller throughout his ministry because he knew people was fo- were following him for the wrong reasons. He wanted them to follow him because they believed in him and him alone as their savior. And then second on this, if you're worried about, you know, oh, we're the little church body and they're the big church body and how dare we call out them. Um, remember that throughout the scriptures, it's always the little guy who's humble enough to say, I need Jesus and only Jesus whom Jesus supports, builds up, works for, right? It's David, not Goliath. It's Rachel, not Leah. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Esther, not Ahasuerus. It's Jonah, not Nineveh. It's Joshua, not Jericho. It's Jesus, not Satan. And it's the early Christian church, not the Roman empire, whom God was on their side. So even though it may seem intimidating, remember who fights for us. Um, fourth, I think one of the reasons we're uncomfortable with this is because it forces us to reckon with the fact that the Bible is not going to agree with us sometimes. Because the Bible is from a holy, perfect God to a corrupt, sinful people, it must necessarily offend us, at least somewhere in our life. For some people, they're offended by the Bible's views of sexuality or politics or money or time or worship or for some, the man of lawlessness. So you have to ask yourself, am I willing to let the Bible get into my personal space and make me uncomfortable? Or am I going to soften this or ignore this or push this away so that Christianity can be what I want it to be rather than what Jesus wants it to be? Last thought on this then. Um, I think we also have to understand that even though the office of the papacy is the most obvious and most powerful manifestation of the man of lawlessness, it is not the only one. And that we should be on guard constantly for anyone who sets themselves up in the temple, in the place of God, and says, you have to follow me in order to be saved. Whether they're Roman Catholic or whether they're Protestant, they stand in front of a church and say, I have the special knowledge. You have to believe what I say. I'm teaching you something that nobody else is ever going to teach you. That person deserves not to be followed. Okay, so this is heavy stuff, and it's probably something we need to pray about. But where's the good news in this? Well, the good news is that Jesus tells us about it beforehand, right? You imagine being a Jew, Jewish Christian, in those years between when Jesus says these words, 30 or so AD and 70 AD, when the temple falls. Thinking to yourself, man, that temple has stood for a really long time. It's big and beautiful and it it symbolizes the power of God's people. But Jesus says it's going to fall. Do I trust this guy? Or do I trust the big institution? Jesus gives us these words so we can believe them and know that what he says is true and that it is going to happen. And so as we think about our Christianity in the modern world, let's not think about it in terms of institutions, but in terms of who Jesus is, what he said, and do we believe it? 
Because if we do, as Jesus himself says, we will be of those elect, those chosen, for whom God shortened the days of suffering. You are the chosen. You are the elect. You've been given God's word, given his sacrament, given his baptism, so that you can know with absolute certainty that Jesus will cut short your days, that he will take you out of this world of pain and suffering and false teaching and corruption and people using power to abuse other people, and he will take you from it to a safe place, to a mountain, not the mountains of Pella, Jordan, but the Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth. He'll take you there so that you won't have to live through days that are painful and frustrating and and terrifying and sad. That place has been prepared for you. You have been chosen for it, elected for it, and that's why you're hearing these words today because Jesus cares enough to let you know. So let's all go back to scripture. Like we said last week, Let's know what it says. Let's trust in our Savior. Let's move forward together, not as a group that identifies with any denomination, but as a group that identifies with what Scripture says. God grant that. Amen. Lord Jesus, this is a tough teaching. But we know that by your Holy Spirit, you give us the words to say, the words to believe, that in the face of what the world might say, or what common wisdom might teach that you are true and that you say these things for our benefit. And ask Holy Spirit that you would come on each of us, give us the faith to believe these words, and give us the faith that you are going to take us out of this world, that you will cut short our days for our good, for our salvation. We ask it all in your name. Amen.